0: Spend less time quoting and more time selling.
1: This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the US precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org.
0: Shazam, this is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Have you ever considered opening up your company's financials to the workforce? Today's guest, Reed Leland, has done so and with remarkable success. Reed is the founder and president of LeanWorks in Ogden, Utah, and he has created a better shop. And I use the word better deliberately as it is part of their trademark, we make everything better. We will discuss what that means as well as what has been behind the success of LeanWorks that won them multiple awards so far, including the prestigious Top Shop Award. LeanWorks focuses on manufacturing the very most demanding of parts and the word high is common in describing the environments and types of parts that they manufacture high precision, high pressure, high temperature. They even like Inconel. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Reed.
2: Thank you, thank you, glad to be here.
0: On your website profile, you prompt the reader to ask you about lemon trees. And I do wanna hear the answer to that, but first I noticed on your LinkedIn profile that you speak Russian. How did you come about learning Russian?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, we had uh, to take two years of foreign language in high school. And uh, uh, just so happens that Russian was one of our options. So, you know, typically it's Spanish or French. And mm-hmm. uh, we had a uh, the opportunity to learn Russian. We had a, a Russian immigrant. Um, actually, in those days, she was uh, from the Soviet Union, but she uh, immigrated um, to the United States. And was teaching Russian at uh, in our high school. So I took it for a couple of years and uh, enjoyed it. And she had some connections back in the former Soviet Union and actually arranged a five week tour for us one summer. We went back there and uh, went all over the place um, and uh, had a great time and took it actually for three years and became fluent enough to to uh, get by uh, in Russia. So. It was a, a great experience.
0: Have you ever been back?
2: I have not, nor do I really desire to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm just wondering what the, you would see as the differences between when it was the Soviet Union and it's now Russia, but how it's the same, but it would probably be a lot different.
2: I I would imagine it's different as uh, many places would be that was uh you know uh 35 uh 36 35 years ago so yeah. um I was a teenager and uh um you know there were some pretty stark differences between what I was used to in America and what I saw there um and I think now with with 50 years of life under my belt I could probably get more out of it and see and understand better, but uh, I'm sure it's quite different
0: today. So, what's up with lemon trees?
2: Um, well, interesting uh, story, I guess. Um, interesting enough that our a marketing person thought it was worthy of, of putting in my bio. Um, I I grew up for seven years. It lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and we had uh, uh, we lived in a subdivision that was built in an old orchard and uh, so many of the hom- homes in our subdivision had uh, citrus trees. Uh, most of them were grapefruit trees and still uh, the pickers would come around when I lived there and, and pick the grapefruits and take them off for juicing or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but we we had a couple other trees in our yard and we had a lemon tree that had a lime branch grafted onto it and I You know, I was, uh, I lived there from the age of seven to 14.
0: What do you mean by you had a lime tree branch grafted onto it? How do you do that?
2: So that uh, I don't personally know, but I know it can be done. There's a way to, to graft a branch of one tree onto another tree and it takes and lives and survives. And so we had this tree that grew almost all lemons, beautiful, big (laughs) yellow lemons, and one branch had these uh, green limes on it.
0: So you and made the lemon tree better.
2: Yeah, it made the lemon <laughs> tree better. And I would, uh, as the story says on my website, I would pick those and, and we were one of the only people in our neighborhood with, with those, mm-hmm. with those uh, fruit. So I would take them around on my wagon and sell them to neighbors. And uh, I was always interested in finding a way to make a buck even a, as a kid. So that's the story.
0: So you started out as an entrepreneur when you were very young. Uh,
2: Evidently, yeah.
0: Yeah. There are so many really interesting parts of how you approach business, but before we jump into those, maybe you could just give us a thumbnail sketch of Lean Work, so we can think about the approach that you've taken from what, what you've actually created. When you started, number of team members, square feet, types of parts, types and numbers of machines, stuff like that.
2: Um, Yeah, that's the dry part of it. I mean, we've got today, we're, uh, well, today is an interesting day because of what's going on um, with uh, coronavirus. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're 20 people, 22 people, um, and we have roughly um, 40% of our businesses in high pressure pumping for oil and gas. Mm. And uh sixty percent of our business is in various aerospace and defense markets, commercial and government. And uh we're we're obviously um uh working through the current challenge, but uh those are that's what we do, those are the types of parts we make. Um and so yeah, like I said, that's the dry part of it. The story I like to tell about leanworks to help people understand it a little bit better is how it came to be. Yeah. And um, so I graduated from uh, Weber State University here in Ogden in, two th- in uh, 1993 uh, with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. And I uh, was uh, thought I wanted to save the world. I was kind of a closet tree hugger
3: mm-hmm.
2: and went to University of Oklahoma to get a master's degree in civil environmental engineering where I could help address um, all these environmental issues that were were so uh you know a uh, hot topic at the time and in many mm-hmm. ways still are and i so I got that degree and my first job out of school uh ended up bringing me back here to Ogden. I worked at Hill Air Force Base um, and uh decided I really didn 't like cleaning up messes and so I went back to my uh, mechanical roots. Uh, at Weber, and uh, went back to work with a company that I actually worked for part time as a student at Weber called Setpoint. And Setpoint was an industrial automation um, integrator that would design and build clean sheet machinery from scratch for companies that needed uh, automation that you couldn't buy it off the shelf. Mm-hmm. And so I love that. And their, uh, their, uh, philosophy was built on this open book management and uh, that's where I really kind of cut my teeth in, in the world of business and uh, um, became the general manager of that company after a few years. And in 2001, after the nine 11 uh, uh, terrorist attacks and the dot com bubble was kind of imploding at the same time Uh uh, set point, was having a hard time uh, keeping the hoppers full. And the owners who had branched out to start a new venture, their new venture was having a hard time at the same time and they couldn't afford to be absentee owners. And so uh, they came back to run Setpoint and I was uh, let go. And that really was the the first domino to fall in the creation of, of lean works. And what happened was I had a great relationship with the owners
3: mm-hmm.
2: and after a few, uh, after about a year of bouncing around trying to find something I really liked and I liked set points so much that, uh, it was hard for anything to live up to it. And it had a unique culture based on open book management. And uh, so, I mean, it really kind of set me up for, for not, not being able to be happy anywhere else. And, <laughs> And uh, I had a great relationship with the owners. And after about a year, they came to me and said, "Hey, we outsource a lot of machine work. Why don't you start a machine shop, and we'll partner with you?"
3: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and I said, "I'm an engineer. I'm not a machinist. That's 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 uh, that's that's not me. No thanks." Mm-hmm. Well, it planted a seed, and uh, um, I after a month or two, I started researching and doing all this stuff. And uh, I went back to him a few months later, and and said, maybe maybe that does sound good. Are you still interested? And they said, yeah. So we, we partnered and in June of 2003, uh, lean was formed. They owned 40%. I owned 60. Ah. And, uh, uh, and I built it on the very open book management principles that I was so fond of at set point. And so that's how, that's how we got started. And I had a, had a captive customer to help me learn the ropes because I wasn't a machinist, but
0: it was Did just they me. contribute besides business financial capital to get going.
2: So uh, another interesting part of the story, because, um, I contributed 80% of the startup capital and Setpoint per contributed 20% of the startup capital.
3: Mm.
2: And, but they got 40% of ownership and I got 60
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that's because they, I wanted them to co I, I couldn't get a loan. Mm. go buy a hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment and I needed to do all this stuff. And, and, uh, I didn't have enough money to kind of, to bootstrap that. So, um, so that's why we split it. Cause they were going to, they were going to co-sign on the debt. Mm-hmm. with me. That's why we split it like that. So that was the contribution
0: out of the gate. Did you have a agreement in place for you to buy them out down the road? Was that we selling? had a
2: very thorough. Thank God, it was one of the best things we did. Very thorough operating agreement, uh, membership agreement um, mm-hmm. that, that stipulated uh, after so many years there was a buy sell, um, you know, option, and uh, there was um, rules about decision making for you know typical stuff, but decision making on major purchases and and so forth. And there was a stipulation that, uh, my spouse could not, uh, work at the company. So, uh, for the first four years, it was, uh, uh, she, she could obviously come and visit, but she couldn't work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So whose idea was it to create this comprehensive operating agreement?
2: Well, I, you know, the, the owners of Setpoint are savvy business people Mm -hmm. and, um, they, uh, and, and we work with some great uh, legal and tax advisors. And so they had formed several other small companies, uh, spinoffs of Setpoint. Uh, the founder of Setpoint, Joe Cornell, used to call his strategy the onion strategy. I mean, he'd keep on creating these companies and you call them layers on the onion, you know. Mm-hmm. And this machine shop was just another layer on the onion. And he was also very, uh, um, had a, abundance mentality. There's enough for everybody. So he didn't feel like he had to own or control every uh every company that he started. He just wanted a piece of it.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: and and he was very helpful to those companies as they started. So so uh I think Leanworks was one of the first uh companies they started. They started another company called Rocky Mountain Testing Solutions. They called they started Setpoint Amusement which made roller coasters and a lot of different companies. Um, but uh um, that was the uh, um, uh, reason that we had a good ap- agreement up front. Was so that that's really
0: said. uncommon, though? That's why I'm curious about it. We had an operating agreement at Rapid, but it was more of a prenup, in an agreement of disagreement, if you will. Whereas it sounds like this was even more intentional, the very thoughtful in how you would make those decisions and had the foresight that you probably would want to buy them out at some point. Oh.
2: Well, I, 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 attribute that to the, they're just really savvy and smart guys. They, uh, um, the CFO who was a minority holder in set point, um, you know, was an MBA from uh, Berkeley and, and, and worked at Ford Motor Company and, and decided he hated big companies, but he um, was very, uh, Mm -hmm. very astute. And then the two engineers that did, that were equal partners in Setpoint, Joe Cornwell and Joe Vandenberg were um, just really passionate and, and very open. uh, Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I think, you know, really exemplified this uh, world of abundance mentality that, uh, and they brought more people to the table. And because of that, I think they, they uh, operated on on a lot of really good ideas and good principles. So.
0: so how did you learn about machining so that you could actually make parts? Uh,
2: good question. Um, I, maybe, the, maybe the Joes at Setpoint had more confidence in me than I did, but the, they figured I could figure it out. And that's what I did. I just figured it out. Um, for, I, I got on a plane with a uh, uh, salesman from uh, New West Machine Tools here, which was uh, back in the day, which was the Moriseki dealer here in, in the Salt Lake Valley. We flew to California and looked at a used um, mill. And it was about hundred grand. And I decided to buy it. And so we shipped it out here and put it in the shop and there's a corner of setpoint i was just leasing this 1500 square foot corner in their building and uh for a month uh that salesman tim um came by every afternoon not for a month for two weeks came by every afternoon and spent a few a few hours an hour or two with me and showed me how to run gibbs cam and how to pick tools and how to set g54 and how to how to program and do it all and so i I, I just, in two weeks, it was a crash course. By the end of this second week, I could program a part, set it up, run it, and uh, I could make parts. And I started making parts for Setpoint. Wow. So that's how that's how it happened.
0: So for anyone who's thinking about buying a shop, who's listening, thinking about buying a shop and saying, do I have to know how to make parts? The answer is no. And I'll share my how i got to make parts i was selling i was a sales guy and i was selling cad cam software and i had the idea of using cam in a beyond how it was typically being used in 1993 to machine surfaces to create prototypes as opposed to the typical way back then of piecing them all together so I left the sales world. I joined a prototype shop, and I knew how to program. That was pretty easy, sort of like playing a video game. But I got on the machine. The owner had a lot of faith in me, but I got in, out there on the floor, and I had to very humbly go over and ask one of the traditional model makers, how do you set a zero? And <laughs> they just sort of looked at me as, there's this uh, – tech whiz and he's going to help save the shop bring us into the 21st century and he doesn't even know how to set a zero
3: yeah who is this kid
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah and then a couple of times luckily the machining centers were enclosed because i forgot to we used a double-sided tape a lot on plastics and i forgot mm-hmm. to tape them down so all of a sudden you'd hear this thump and the part would go flying off and
3: <laughs> yeah. oops
0: so but i didn't have any experience i'd been in a lot of machine shops seen stuff and but you you can learn it. It's it, you you can get the basics. Let me say that that, that that approaching the level of the folks who worked for me, who I worked with, who I'm sure are in your shop, there's there's just so many years of experience there. But at least yeah. you you get a sense of what they're doing, and actually makes you probably appreciate it more, right?
2: Much more, yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. How did you get the name Lean Works?
2: Um, my wife, even though she wasn't allowed to work here, and she had a career of her own. So it's not like she wanted to. Um, mm-hmm. she, she has a degree in accounting and she was the manager of financial accounting for Duke Energy. And they had an office in Salt Lake. And so she had a rip-roaring career. Uh, but obviously we talked and, um, uh, you know, we were going to call it set point production. We had all kinds of different names and, and uh, we just got to talking and, you know, she knows that we're big uh, believers in lean manufacturing. And, and, uh, so we got to throw on ideas back and forth and the word lean came out and she goes, well, why don't you call it lean works? Like, huh. that's a smooth, that's a good name. Let's let's <laughs> do that. And then, and then I shared that with Joe Cornwell at set point and he said, uh, who's, who's the most creative conceptual, um, brilliant guy. I know? And he said, um, and that's good. And you ought to spell the works with E like the German way, just give it a little marketing flair. So
3: that,
2: <laughs> uh, that's where it came from.
0: Excellent. Yeah. I, I like it. I think it, it, it definitely, it's a cool name. Yeah. When did your wife join the company and, the, and is that, was that her joining part of the process that made you want to buy out your partners? Because I assume at that point, you, if you wanted her in the business that they wouldn't be involved.
2: No, it wasn't. That wasn't really it. What happened over the course of the first three or four years is I realized um, that you know running a machine shop is hard work, and and uh, I, without fail, in the first three or four years of the business, sales were not the problem. We got plenty of sales. We started with set point. We we added auto leave and all these other places and we were getting all the work we wanted. Mm -hmm. And, and, and invariably we'd get, um, bound up on a delivery date and I wouldn't miss a delivery date. So I would, you know, almost every month there would be a day or two where I'd come into the shop at six in the morning. And I, would and, and, you know, after, six months we had a few people and I worked through the day with the people then I'd keep working all through the night making parts and finishing orders they'd show up the next morning I'd still be there and I'd work till that afternoon so I mean I worked 30 or more hours wow. straight on multiple occasions in the first few years and we developed a good reputation that you know we, we hit our dates um, but you know it was grueling and I thought I'm getting 60 cents out of every dollar <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing in and I, this, this is hard work. And, and uh, you, you know, it's competitive and all this stuff. And I thought, um, we had the buy, sell built into the operating agreement. I think it was after three or four years, I could buy it out. I mean, there was a formula three times EBITDA with the progressive blah, blah, blah. And, we, mm-hmm. we, and I could buy out, um, they own 40. I could buy out 30%. They wanted. They had a clause in there that would allow them to maintain ten percent, and I and I just told them when 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 we got to the point where um, uh, I could exercise that option, I said I want to exercise my option and I want to buy it all. And uh, they were kind of, uh, I think, um, y- you know, big enough people to realize they didn't want to be partners in a business with the majority owner that didn't want them in. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I didn't like them or didn't appreciate I, I, to this day, we're still very close friends, but I, and I was just frank with them. I told them it's too hard not to be able to make, yeah. to, to get all the earnings. And so uh, they allowed me to use the formula to buy the last 10% too. So, you know, for, um, for, for all the money I could mortgage my house for and all the money in savings, I was able to scrape together enough to buy them out. And, uh, and because it took that much money, uh, we just took that and put it in, in my wife's name, Susie's name. And so she became a partner at that point, still with her own career going. Uh And, uh, not needing to work with us, but, uh, um, we, we had had at, by this point, we had had three kids and they were very young. And, uh, so she was only working part-time, but, um, but that was, that was how we came to own a hundred percent of the business and, and, uh, how we, uh, um, and where we are today. So,
0: and today you are president and she is CEO and CFO. Is that how you divvy it up?
2: That is correct. Yeah
0: what's it like having your wife as a business partner? Because sometimes it works out great. And sometimes it's, it's not so good. Uh, and I know she'll probably listen to this. So, but I'll, I'll share that. I, I hadn't even started the shop yet, but I was a manufacturer's rep and I wanted to sell. And my wife was supposed to be doing the books and she just didn't have a sense of urgency on it. and, I would get mad and frustrated and it got to a certain point. I said, you know what, I'd rather have a wife than a bookkeeper. So yeah. uh, I went out and got a part-time bookkeeper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so w- what's, what's it that, like for you?
2: That may be, uh, I, I, not to be condescending, but that may be the more typical, your story. Um, yeah. Ours, yeah. I think ours is atypical. Uh, my wife is a phenomenal accountant. I've worked with a lot of accounts and accountants in my time and she is uh in in my fully uh humble and and uh, unbiased opinion the best accountant I've ever worked with she's just really competent that's Mm -hmm. why it works I mean she is super competent and so and she hates the fact that people think she has the position that she has because she's my wife Mm-hmm. And that nothing drives her crazier than that she earns it um every day she comes to work so uh she started working um in two thousand nine when when we had that financial crisis and had some issues uh, uh with, with with the company and we had some people that we had to let go and, and to kind of make it through that. She came in and started helping out and she you know having been she Throughout her career, she was a financial accountant at Hitachi and Duke Energy, and she—I mean—she had some big company experience. And she kind of always used to think, you know, your little company's probably really easy. I could probably do that <laughs> in sleep, um, you know. And so she came in to start helping out, and uh, she got a taste of it, and she loved it. And she thought, you know, this is way more exhilarating and fun. Mm. Uh, than I thought it would be, and so she, she's she been really, she started off part-time for a few years helping out, but then um, I can't remember the actual year that she went full-time, but she's been full-time and, and uh, an absolute critical part of the business um, for a, a long time. Do you now.
0: have a formal way of shutting it off at home so business doesn't consume your relationship?
2: Um, no, no. The answer to that is no, (laughs) we do not. And sometimes it does. And sometimes it's a challenge. Um, and, uh, but we, we seem to complement each other very well. I'm more of the long-term thinker and the conceptual, uh, and I help technically in the shop. She is much more short-term, high intensity, um, uh, very, uh, Um, precise, and hard-driving, and so uh, we complement each other very well. I'm less risk-averse, hence the fact that I started the company. She is very risk-averse, and so um, we balance each other out, and we just, uh, I think, on the real important decisions, um, uh, we do a pretty good job of listening to each other, but uh, um, on the day-to-day stuff, uh, some of the noise... Uh, sometimes it gets a little challenging to shut it down, but um, you know we work our way through it. Nothing formal. Sometimes I wish we did, but we don't.
0: If you don't. You don't have that operating agreement like you did with the set point guys.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. N- not to that level. <laughs>
0: no. No buyouts. Right. Um, so let, let's just talk about now how you. I, I really like how intentional you have been in creating the culture, the DNA. Of lean works, and uh, your trademark is we make things better. And some of the things that you describe are better parts, better process, better people. Who came up with that? And and talk just about better.
2: Yeah. So we. This was. This was a an effort. This is the result of an effort that happened in 2015. Um, I listened to a uh, a webinar. Uh, in which a gentleman named Michelle Naray, who's uh, from Canada, Toronto, uh, was being interviewed about some of the secret sauce of businesses and success and all this stuff. And he said some things that stuck with me. And so I called him and uh, brought him down and and hired him. And he did this deep dive for a few days and got to know me and some key players. And, and then he came up with this... Um, what he called the Leanworks Essential Message.
3: Mm. And
2: basically it was a distillation of, of our DNA and what, what makes us unique and what makes us who we are. And basically that's what he felt like it was is that everything we do, we, we're not satisfied just to do it. We're all driven by this uh internal uh code that says if you're gonna do it, do it better. Make okay. it better, and so he he felt like that was a, a good uh, marketing tagline for us. And me being an engineer and Susie being an accountant, uh, we don't have a lot of marketing expertise. In, and And uh, this guy's pure marketer, and so he kind of put the marketing flair on it, and that's what he. So did. it was already
0: at Lean Works. He just pulled it out.
2: That I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah.
0: So, before the podcast began, we had talked about your. Core philosophy or core values is an acronym. Radar. Did that come out of his discovery as well? No. And what, and what is radar, first of all?
2: No. Radar is an acronym that um, that uh, that stands for our five core principles, and uh, those core principles are resourcefulness, accountability, developer, um, abundance. And respect, and so uh, and there's a description for each one of those that kind of fills it out and brings it to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were really in place from the beginning. And I uh, I had heard about a process of approaching, um, you know, big things. This process of four Ps, where you start anything you want to do, you start with your purpose. And then once you figure out what your purpose is, once you know and discover your purpose, you have to understand your principles. Mm-hmm. And then when you, when you get your principles that you want to operate by established, then you can bring on the people. And then when, when you have the people, then you can work together on what the plan is. And so many people start with the plan before they know the other stuff. But I love that approach. And so before we even wrote up the operating agreement, for lean works with set point um, I sat down and worked through what is our purpose going to be? And wow. what is, what is our, what are our guiding principles going to be? And so I, I, was very intentional about that. I actually have it written down and, and we did that. Um, and it's so that that's, uh, that's how we, how we started. And that's where those principles came from. We didn't really uh, the, the radar coin and the acronym and the, mm-hmm. the, all the, all the um, things that we do in the shop now around that came later, but the principles were in place and we, we, we would publish them and talk about them, but we're doing a lot more with them now.
0: The, I'm, I'm thinking of the, what you said in terms of, and I have to say, I probably had, I had the purpose and the principles, but I, there were more in my head. I, I just put together a business plan for rapid and I had a philosophy, but it wasn't, wasn't articulated like you put forth. And I think probably a lot of people do that. So I, I would say, first of all, it's probably never too late. What would you say to a shop owner who has, who's up and running and is trying to extract that from their company? Should they hire a consultant like that? Is it something you can do yourself or what's a well, good way to get yeah, started?
2: I don't think there's a one, one way to do it. And, and, and that, that's just me. I mean, that approach of figuring it out first and getting, doing that up front, that that's just who I am. I know wildly successful business people who um, didn't even have a plan. It just kind of happened. I mean, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? That, that, there's so many different ways to become successful. But, but if you want to,
0: if you want to try to pull out a, a purpose, what uh, is Simon Sinek a, a start with why is that the type? Yeah, of thing that's thing good. That's a,
2: a, that's a really popular one. Um, that I like, um, uh, you know, Stephen Covey is one, obviously that, that with the abundance stuff that I'm uh, happy with. Um,
0: mm-hmm. uh, by the way, I think abundance is such a great word and that it, you can take it in so many different directions. It's, it, it's a great mindset to have because the opposite is a scarcity mindset. So yep. it's, it comes into play, I've said before on the podcast, of looking at spending money as either an investment or an expense. Mm-hmm. And an abundance mindset is it's an investment investment. Mm-hmm. Whereas a scarcity mindset is, is an expense and I would really want to minimize those because I only have so much money.
2: Right, right. And and the scarcity mindset doesn't see the money you can make with the investment.
0: Right, right.
2: Or, or they might logically know it's there, but emotionally they can't count on it. Right, and so those of us with the abundance mentality almost go. I mean. Uh, I'm, I'm sharing a little bit about the dynamic between Susie and me. I mean, yeah. she, uh, like, if we spend this 250 grand on this machine, it's going to do all this. And, and she, you don't know that, you know, <laughs> where's the proof? I said, there's no proof, but we, you know, we've got to believe in ourselves. And so it, it that's. Uh, um,
0: so how, if you're communicating radar to someone who you've just brought on board. Well, let's pick uh, – we, we talked about abundance. Well, how do you communicate one of the other words? Do you have uh, stories? Do you uh, – how do you How do you bring radar really into the company so it's not just some words on the wall?
2: That That's a great question, and that's exactly the question that was driving me crazy for the first, you know, 13, 14 years of, of the business. It meant so much to me, but I didn't feel like, as a company – that we were living that every day. And so a few years ago uh, that question had burned it, burned me up so much that I thought we just have to do something. So we came up with the the core coin concept and we, we made uh, five different coins. Each one, each hmm. of the coins has the word engraved on it okay. and then it has a sentence that, that fills it out and, and, and describes what it means, you, you know, ab- abundance to some of the, the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. There's enough for everybody. Win win.
3: Mm-hmm. That,
2: that's what it says. And so each one of our each one of our uh, coins says that on it. And then we have a uh, a, a, fit, a sixth coin that's a radar coin that that um, just says radar on it. And then it has each one of the the uh, uh, principles engraved around the circumference of it. Huh. So so we've got these coins. Then how does it work? So We have in the break room and all over the shop um, a description of each one of the core principles and then a a, a description of how this program works where we, uh, each person can nominate one person a week for anything they see. If, If they see somebody that exemplifies one of those core principles, then they can nominate that person. And all they do is send me an email or write me a note Mm-hmm. or the or their lead a note or whatever and so each week i'm getting three four five seven sometimes ten uh nominations for someone uh valerie stayed late to make sure and get this shipped or mm. uh y- you know so and so had an idea to make this better and so they get the developer award and or, or coin and so we have a weekly meeting all hands meeting in the break room and the second item on the agenda after we go through results is core coin, uh, nominations. And so I read it out, uh, you know, Kim nominated Valerie for accountable and, and then there's a description she did X, Y, and Z. And, and so it really helped the company. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so, so that's a weekly event. And then every month we have a, a, a winner of the radar coin. So that goes to the person who most exemplifies, mm. The, the overall living the core principles and I picked the first winner, but then from then on for the last few years, it's been the the last winner picks the next winner for each
0: month. Ah, I love that.
2: So, so really it's, it, yeah. it's become the thing And then we've got a deal where once you get so many coins, you can trade them in for um, you can trade them in for lunch for your team.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you can trade them in for lean work swag. So it, it's, it's actually worked really well. We've done a lot of little programs here that some of them kind of fade and fizzle. This one stuck, and it's really brought our core principles to life. And the the new people get it immediately, Cause just because we're doing that and talking about it every week.
0: Yeah, we had an acronym. We And like you, it didn't come together until we had been in business for quite a while. But our acronym was PAWS, which was... P, prototypes first, A, anticipate the customer, U, under promise, over deliver, S, sense of urgency, and E, enjoy the journey, and it, I think like you, I wanted to come up with a way to describe how we operated that embodied the culture, and I think it's really important, and it's what you did, that the core values, core philosophy was what we were already doing rather than what we wanted to be.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was it was really important to be able to live and, and or try to live those values every day because those were how the shop was running and you didn't want to stray from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So actually one of the things we did was when we were interviewing, I would tell folks or whoever was interviewing the five core values and we'd say, which one resonates with you most? And tell us why, just to see if they did, because if none of them did, then yeah. <laughs> wasn't going to be a good fit.
2: Yeah. Um, that, that, that brings up an idea that we have that we have not executed yet. And that is, to go around and, and ask people and videotape it. What, what does, what does developer mean to you? What does accountable mean to you? Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, and then create a video montage of people. I love that. Yeah. And because we use a lot of video here and we have uh, Mm -hmm. the ability to kind of use that in our training. So, uh, uh, that's, that's on the bucket list of things to do.
0: Yeah. The other thing we we did, which was we instead of just telling someone great job, we trained the managers first to describe it in terms of one of the core values Mm. that that was a great job because you anticipated what the customer was going to want and you made sure we had the tooling in place so that we could execute on that. I think it was, that was really helpful. So, yeah. So better people embedded within the DNA of lean works. You, I liked, again, before we were talking, you used the phrase of everybody talks about this, uh, not a skilled workforce. It's tough to hire people. And you decided to create your own destiny rather than be a victim so if you could just talk to that and what you've done to bring up the people who are within leanworks as well as make sure you've got a pipeline of talent
2: yeah so um you know we grew we grew really fast we you know in in uh i would say from about 2009 when we struggled through that crisis, we, we got down to about six people. We had mm. been about 20 people before that, yep. but that really knocked us in the knees. And then, so we went from about, uh, six people to in 2014. So in six years we were 65 people. So we, wow. grew really, we grew really fast and, um, and, and those, we had a lot of growing pains through that time. And we had, uh, um, uh, decided, you know, that we can't, I mean, we did exactly what you said. We, we said, you know, we're not going to be victims. We're going to take control of our own destiny and we're going to implement a training program. We're going to find a way to screen people when we're interviewing them for the right stuff, mm-hmm. you know, the aptitude and the attitude. And, uh, you know, we're going to look for people who are humble, hungry, and smart. And, uh, um, and, 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 get them in here and then train them. And Mm -hmm. so uh, uh, that was the approach to it. And then we, you know, we struggled with a lot of different things, uh, trying to figure out how to train in an efficient way that didn't create tons of administrative burden. And we struggled with that for a long time. And honestly, we still struggle with it, but we've gotten a lot better at it. And, uh, and, you know, over the years, we've gotten Department of Labor approved. We have a certified apprenticeship program in here. And
0: So how uh, many other machine shops in Utah have a certified apprenticeship program?
2: One that I know of.
0: Was that hard to get through the system, or were they pretty easy to work with?
2: Um, it, it was difficult in that the... The apprenticeship um, lead in Utah that works for the Department of Labor was uh, well intended, but it was it just was painstakingly slow. So you have you have to let them in to audit your program and and do mm-hmm. some stuff, and then you got to send your thing uh, your your manual to them and your your uh, um, your training. Protocols and all that stuff, and then they approve it. And so it took us a long time to kind of iterate through. Well, you, you're missing this, or this doesn't fit. And we had to kind of, kind of wrangle that in until we got it approved. But um, you know, that took, I, you know, I'm guessing, but 18 to 24 months, something like that. It just, I didn't keep track of it exactly, but it took did you a have long a long time?
0: Did you have a template that you were following that someone? gave you or you found on the web somewhere or did you have to create this from scratch working with them?
2: We we created ours from scratch. Um, the the hours tracking forms, and but they're out there. I mean, you can find some things. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: uh, and we, how many they, apprentices do you have, have gone through the program or are working in it now with you?
2: Um, th- there's, uh, I'm going to say there are uh, about 14 people in it right now. Wow! We have had one um, go through all the way to journeyman. We have uh, three other journeymen on staff already that got theirs elsewhere.
3: Huh.
2: And so, um, and, and we do it in a way, in order to comply with the standard, um, we have what we call a pre-apprentice program, be- they can go through and track all their hours and get the training uh-huh. and they're not officially in the apprenticeship program, but is but we can only have one trainee per journeyman.
3: Okay.
2: And so uh, so as soon as one of our trainees matriculates and gets their journeyman certificate, we can move someone in from the pre-apprenticeship program right at the level where they are. And it may only, they may only have six months or a year, or year and a half to, to get their journeyman because they've been, they've been Mm. progressing through the pre-apprenticeship program the whole, the whole way.
0: You're talking a fair amount of people. Do most of the folks who go through the program stick with you? or Are you seating other shops as well? And those.
2: It, it helps us attract people.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I don't, know if it helps us retain people um i just think that um we have pretty decent retention and and it's gotten better over the years we've had periods where it's been tough especially in in uh uh you know some tough economic times but yeah um I, you know, I just, I really don't know Jay on that. If it's, if it's moved the needle on retention, I can, I can guarantee it's moved the needle on, on recruiting and getting them in. And, and oftentimes we know in the first 90 days, if they're not cut from the right cloth. And so there's an intentional separation, (laughs) but uh, um, it probably has helped with retention. Uh, You know, our, our core people have been steady over the years it's the people that come and go on the fringes and mm-hmm. and and some of those are have worked out really well and moved into the core what i would say
0: so what i'm hearing is that it's even though you put in a lot of effort and and you may not retain everyone or maybe even the majority what it's done for you is created that core group that otherwise you might not have. And that's the foundation that, you know, you can build upon. Is that a good way of saying it?
2: I think so. I think that's good. I think the other thing I would share just for people listening that want to understand apprenticeship programs is the department of labor side of it requires that you record your hours. And, and as much as people want, to be in an apprenticeship program and progress towards a journeyman certificate, they have to be responsible enough to record their hours and turn them in. Mm -hmm. And there's a website where you can turn them in so that you, so that you can get those And it's amazing how many people are so dead set on getting into a place where they can get on an apprenticeship path. And then once they're here uh, and they're in it, they really struggle to keep up with, keep tracking, keeping track of their hours. That's their responsibility. We're not going to do it for them. Right. And so all they have to do is fill out a sheet once a week. It's manual, uh-huh. and, you know, and, and, uh, that's what I find fascinating is, is that, uh, the, the people, the majority of people in the apprenticeship program do not track We We would have half a dozen journeymen right now. If we, if they were all tracking their hours and turning them in, uh, uh that had matriculated through the, program we've had one and so uh,
0: i almost see that as a shortcoming of the department of labor because if you could create an app where you could do it on your phone you'd probably it'd be so much easier for them to put their hours in right
2: well i think so it's not hard to write it down on a piece of paper we give I, them I, a, I i get i get that but
0: yeah. but I, I i guess it's one of the it, it it's one of those philosophy questions is yes, they should do it. And there's, there's so many things that people should do in your shop, but you can only fight so many battles. And, and you, what I always used to try to do was with my people was amplify their strength and protect their weaknesses. Uh And obviously filling out paperwork is a weakness for a lot of people. So rather than punish them for something that's a weakness, I, I just had that mentality of protect the weakness. And that, that, anyway, that's the way I look at it. Well, I,
2: I think that's a that's kind of a noble approach. Um, but the fact is the Department of Labor does require <laughs> uh, you to submit your – so you have to scan it. You have to fill out your chart. Then yeah. you have to scan it on our scanner. Then you have to upload the scan to an email and send it off to the Department of Labor. And they're keeping track. It's mm. called rapids. The, it's an acronym for something, but it tracks all the apprenticeships that they're. Mm. And so that's uh, it's just old school and it's not, it, it's not set up on anything that would do that would work with an app, at least not, right.
0: not yet. Yeah. Well, we teased everyone in the beginning and said that you, from the beginning have used the open book management philosophy. So, can you tell folks what is open book management and why you've chose to take that approach? It sounds like you, you started at set point. Give us some background and what over the years has been the what what you've seen by implementing the positives and maybe perhaps some of the, the things that haven't gone as well as you might have liked.
2: Yeah, for sure. So the short story on the background is uh, Joe Cornwell and Joe Vandenberg who started set point um, when they worked together at a company called aerodynamics, they became friends and read this book called the great game of business by Jack stack. Great and book. You've read it. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so Jack and, and, and they thought this is how you run a business. And so they started set point and uh, when I was at Weaver State a student still and they I was one of their first employees uh, and we would they would photocopy chapters of the book we would go to they didn 't have a building they were moonlighting while they started set point
1: mm-hmm. we would
2: we would go to someone 's apartment or uh, or uh, a park or something, and we would take turns um, reviewing chapters of the book together and like pop- a, like
0: a like a manufacturing or management book club huh
2: yeah exactly, and so that 's That's, and then, and then we were getting jobs with Morton Thicol, little tooling jobs, and we would design and build these fixtures. Uh, We'd outsource all the machining, but we would bring Mm -hmm. them in, assemble it and do electric test fixtures and stuff like that. And, and we would dissect the financials of every project we did as a group, as a company. And there was only five or six of us at the time. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And, uh, and then as the company grew and you, you know, Last year they sold for, uh, I don't know how many tens of millions to Hitachi wow. uh, or maybe more. I mean, so, you know, from 92 or 91, when they started till a few years, till like a year and a half ago, uh, you know, they, they it, it evolved through that whole time. So I'm telling you about the very beginning, mm-hmm. but um, it evolved from, you know, just talking about it to having uh you know, daily and weekly processes to putting it on boards, having visual tools. And uh, by the time I started LeanWorks, I was w- well indoctrinated. And so that's, and, and what, what it is, it's sharing the financial results of the company with everybody. Hmm. And, and the, the philosophy is that the intelligence of the group is greater than the intelligence of any one individual. And that the and that the financial statements are the ultimate scoreboard of whether you're winning or losing, and so uh, um, that's the basis of it. And and so what we do is every week, uh, we we get together as a company and we review financial results. Um, every day, our shop has a daily profit and loss statement. We know if we make or lose money every day, and we have our shop divided into four cells.
0: So. Uh, that's shared every day with people it's posted it's it's so, in the okay. shop
2: on a big huge board every day uh, <laughs> every day
0: it's
3: okay
2: uh, every day at uh at nine o'clock
0: mm-hmm.
2: the management team meets around that board
3: mm-hmm.
2: and we call it our tier three accountability meeting and so the there's tier one and tier two that happened before that tier one meeting is between the machinists and their cell lead mm-hmm the tier two meeting, and they each have a board in their cell. The tier two meeting is between the cell leads and the shop manager. And then the, the tier three meeting is between, uh, the quality manager, the engineering manager, myself, uh, the CEO, CFO and the sales. So, okay. So there's five of us and, and all that information that had been, um, that that flows up from the cell goes onto a board and the board shows uh, um, whether we made or lost money in each cell and then whether we made or lost money as a shop, Hmm. cumulative. Mm -hmm. And then we have a daily total and a, and a month to date total. And ultimately the key metric that comes out of that is what we call our GP over OE ratio, our gross profit over operating expense. And so if gross profit over operating expense is one, that means we broke even if it's less than one, we lost money. If it's greater than one, we made money.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And, and our profit sharing, which is another key tenant of open book management kicks in when the ratio is 1.2. So if we get a month to date ratio over 1.2, there's a formula that dictates how much money goes into the profit sharing pool. And then the, and then that profit sharing pool gets shared amongst the employees by another um, we distribute shares to the employees, and so it, it it translates into a share price, and so they can see, you know, if if it's ninety three cents a share, and they've got two hundred shares, they're going to get one hundred and eighty six bucks. So, um, for that month, you know, so that's 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 kind of how it works. And then we oh, have, no.
0: oh go go ahead.
2: No, I, I just going to say that the final piece of it that makes it work is the training. So. We have four one hour training modules that train people on um, time value of money, um, income statement and balance sheet um, cash flow is the third one, and the fourth one is metrics, mm-hmm. so balance sheet metrics, you know current ratio uh, you know liquidity think, um, debt to equity things mm-hmm. of that nature so we take one hour in. So four hours in total, and and run them through that training, and at the end of that training, and it's tailored to, so that they understand our um, our. Who,
0: cre- who created the videos?
2: Um, Joe Knight. Uh, he's he was uh, the financial minority partner of Setpoint, mm-hmm. and he wrote a book called Financial Intelligence, which is one of the uh, Harvard business review, top 100 business books of all time. And he, he consults on it all over the world now. Um, But he uh, he's got a company called business literacy Institute and we actually lease an office in our shop to, to he and his partner. And they literally go all over the world. EA sports. I mean, the biggest companies, GE, they're doing financial training for those guys and they have a video series and they're, they're housed in our shop and he's a former partner from Setpoint. <laughs> wow! And, and he can come to, he comes down to our all hands meeting every now and then and talks to us. But so it's, it's a very uh, synergistic type of
0: situation. Wow. That, so, what, a, what a great resource to have right there. Yeah. The, do you find then obviously the videos are not going to help people understand everything. So, but do you find that, the team members do pretty much get their arms around the concepts enough that they, when the numbers are on the boards, they can understand them or?
2: Not from the training alone. What happens is uh, that, you know, every week we have a meeting and we talk about the numbers. Mm -hmm. And so the numbers become real once they, once we, you know, once they're with us week after week and we,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, you, you know, we talk about them. Now, I will say that um, the, the level of understanding and engagement on the numbers ebbs and flows based on our training efforts. So if we get too busy for a year and don't update the mm-hmm. training or get the new people through it, um, that understanding goes down. Um, but there's, there's also a, the core group of people who really understand it that are out there that, that maintain the floor, right? I mean, they, they maintain the bottom of the understanding. They, they make sure that um, that there is a base level of understanding at our shop. And the, the, the other thing that brings it to life is that there is that big uh, GP over OE board in the shop, right in the middle of the shop, where people walk by it every day and, and so they know they're looking at that key number, GP over OE, what, what is it today? What was it for my cell? What was it for my machine? We have it down to that level. And there's a lot of allocations that go on with expenses on how much expense to allocate to each area and each cell and each machine. Um, but we talk about that in the huddle. Hey, allocations aren't perfect, but the overall number is right because mm-hmm. you, you know there's some give and take. So those conversations and over time people's understanding Uh, improve
0: you know I'm thinking about this from maybe from my perspective as a shop owner and probably a lot of the listeners is like whoa there's no way I'm going to show all my financials to everyone in the company that's there's a few different reasons one it's private two they they won't understand and they'll uh, think we're, we're super greedy and and I look back and I certainly didn't have the financial competency in the beginning, even if I wanted to do that and then it's almost like it got to a point where the effort to do it would have been pretty pretty uh, i don't want to say challenging it it would have taken a lot of effort to put into place, and I think there's people who probably I'd be interested if this happens to your organization, they just don't understand it and they see the numbers and it turns them off for some reason. And uh, so if I put it into the company as an ongoing concern, would there be key people who would maybe walk away? What what do you think about that?
2: Yeah. I, so there's a lot there. Um, The the first thing I would say is um, it's, it is how we run the company. It is our, Primary uh, mode for performance feedback. Every shop does something to provide performance feedback,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so our performance feedback is built around that ratio, GP over OE. So whether you know whether or not you're doing that, which is a financial approach to feedback, or whether you're just doing pure throughput and quality and you know on time or whatever,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, you're doing something to manage performance and give that feedback. And this is just how we do it. And, and the the way we've developed has become fairly efficient for us. It's, it's not an overwhelming, time-consuming endeavor.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking about it for somebody who says, I, I really would like to do it, but I'm afraid or I, maybe it's too late in my shop's so, journey. So
2: yeah, so so to that point, I would say, um, is it part of your core value system? If you value uh, the transparency, because some of the things that come out of this, it flattens your organization. There's accountability hmm. flows up as fast and as hard or even more so than it flows down. Yeah. Um, because mistakes are transparent and it shows up on the board. Uh, you bid that wrong. Why did we go? Why didn't you? Uh, check on that customer's credit ratio or they're not paying us. I mean, because we cover cash. How much cash do you have? Why aren't we? So th- there's a lot of, tra- the transparency is great and there's no place to hide. That's the other thing that comes out of this is poor performers. Um, there is absolutely no place to hide. So mm-hmm. poor performers get weeded out pretty fast. So if, it's, if that's the kind of culture you want, very transparent and uh, not that you can't have a transparent, culture in another way, but this forces it, um, the, then you can do it. The, to your other point, it, there are people that this is a huge turnoff to, and it becomes a filter. So um, you, you will lose people, and uh, you may lose highly skilled, good contributors um, yeah. if, if they're not used to it from the outset, if you're trying to convert I had a guy that was a great machinist journeyman, longtime machinist that said, this is the first place I've ever worked where uh, I worry about it at night. Ah. And, and I said, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want. <laughs> but,
0: but, but that's not what he wanted, right? <laughs> that's not
2: what he wanted and he left. <laughs> and, and so I've always said open book management creates an equitable distribution of stress. <laughs> I still feel the most, but the other people feel it too. And, and along with that, it creates what I call psychic ownership. Yeah, the yeah. People, because they know the numbers and they, it, it creates this psychological connection to the company that they feel and act like owners. Because we're sharing with them the, the financial information.
3: Mm.
2: And so those are, to me, the benefits that come out of it. And, you know, we don't do detailed budgeting. And, and we share the information. And we focus on uh broad costing uh, uh, um, ap- approaches and strategic marketing and and it 's not like big company finance where you know there's complex costing and and things of that nature so um, it's it's a way to run the business that gets the information out and and because people have the right information we believe that it Uh, fosters better decision-making. So do I need this end mill? Um, Hmm. Well, I know that's going to affect my expendable tooling number for, for my cell or, um, you know, Mm -hmm. do I need that fixture? Is there another way to do it? You you know? and, And so we get that kind of behavior.
0: I wonder though, just to be sort of devil's advocate that it's good that they're thinking of about those sort of things, but are they perhaps missing a bigger picture when they're so focused on the cost they control where, where you would want them to spend money, but they're not willing to spend money.
2: That happens. That happens. And I have to encourage them to, 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 to say, look, our time is worth more than that. We've got to go get that. So yeah, that happens for sure.
0: I'm sure we could, chat for quite a bit longer on this. I, before we wrap up though, you are a member of the NTMA, the National Tooling Machining Association. Can you just share some of your experiences with that and why you have decided to join and, and participate in the NTMA?
2: Yeah, I, I would love to do that. I just want to say one more thing about open book management that I think mm-hmm. for anybody that's interested in pursuing that Um, the, the thing that, um, is so, uh, critical about that is that it is, it is not a panacea, right? It is, it is hard work. And the number one thing that, that, um, but it pays off, but the number one thing that I get and that you have to work on is to explain that cash is real and profit is theoretical. And so the, the fear that most... (laughs) the fear that most owners have is that they're going to see these, these numbers on the income statement and they're going to think I got that much in my wallet. And, and so we spend mm-hmm. a lot of time training on the difference between cash and profit. And, uh, and then they got to, uh, they get to understand that cash cycle and, and the collections and, and, and all these other important aspects of the business that machinists don't normally think about. So, all right. As far as NTMA goes, um, and NTMA has been a really uh a helpful organization for me. I joined in 2009 and uh it's been a um a great group of uh like-minded uh shop owners that um get together at national events, at chapter events locally and we share and help and and uh, there's a ton of content um that that is helpful. Uh, there are a ton of resources that are helpful, everything from um, the help we're getting now about understanding uh, all the new legislation that's come out with the CARES mm-hmm. Act and the FFCRA and, and all that stuff. We've, we've just had endless resources to help us navigate this, and it's all because of the NTMA. And uh, groups like the UMA, Utah Manufacturers Association, also help with that. But the NTMA is really plugged into its members uh, to technical support, to, uh, um, you know, HR issues, to, to uh, um, you know, discounts with all their associate mm,
3: members.
2: Yeah. Uh, so there's just a ton of value in it that, that's been great, great for me. But probably the best thing is that um, at any given moment, I've got a network of a 1,500 shops, most of whom I know Mm. Most of whom will open up their doors for me and, 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 and let me go in as I would them, and help help me solve problems. And it's been a very uh, supportive network that has uh, been helpful over the years.
0: I would say what I've seen is the NTMA is a network of abundance mindset, machine shop owners definitely everybody is so positive and so abundance oriented i hadn't thought of it about that way until you you brought that word up today but it's a super way to describe the organization have you been able to help any of them turn to open book management any of them approached you on that and
2: well we've had a lot of tours and and got a lot of attention about that we had a feature article in modern machine shop about it i've had calls from all over the country about people interested in that um the extent to which other shops have adopted and used it is unknown to me but mm. i know there's been a lot of interest
0: yeah well i could chat with you here probably for- couple more hours, Reed. Yeah, you, yeah, I, I think it. we have a lot of common ways of looking at building the team and being intentional and deliberate about how you, you put practices into place and, and continue them. But I'm going to have to – I wrote down – a bu- took a bunch of notes, things I want to consider. And it's, it was just really inspiring to hear your story and how you lead your shop some I think there's going to be some good takeaways for the listeners from this episode and it it, almost, it, it got me going here it makes me wish I still owned a shop and particularly I was, I've been thinking that what if we had open book management at rapid how much more successful might we have been if we had taken the plunge and made the effort to financially educate the team i i think it i think it would have been a a real positive but it takes a lot of courage to do that and and i really didn't have enough information about it at the time so but uh, anyways one of those theoretical things thanks yeah. for being so open and
2: my pleasure thanks jay yeah.
0: any last comments any parting words for our listeners
2: uh, no i think if there's any questions i'm happy to um you know take emails or or uh you know speak to people about it so uh you're welcome to share my email uh but this is what what is uh, your email it, it's r e i d l at l e a n w e r k s dot com
0: and that's leanworks as you just spelled it, uh, com. The, that's the website, any social media at all, you know, if,
2: uh, we have a Facebook page, but we don't pay much attention to it. Unfortunately, I, I really do think our, our Achilles heel is marketing and, uh, you know, you know,
0: uh, before we go, uh, cause we do it, but I do want to say you, you really, I think you have an outstanding website, so you just got to get people there and for folks take a look at their website. What really grab me worthy immediately it plunges you into two case studies that really give you more than any writing a description of shop that the case studies on the site give you a real flavor of the shop and what makes them different and how the approach might work with you as a customer so kudos on your website there
2: well thanks that wasn't cheap but
0: <laughs> <laughs> no it, 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 it <laughs> that, that was money well spent you're just going to get people there right <laughs> yeah
3: yeah
0: well folks thanks for taking a big chunk out of your day to dive into the story of LeanWorks. i hope we're providing you with very specific ways to up your game and that you walk away with an actionable item to implement soon maybe you will think about open books management if you do i would love to know what your results are and maybe we could document your journey there and if you haven't already done so please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform and it would really be appreciated if you shared the job shop show with at least one other owner who you know that's my my actionable item to ask of you today be a part of helping raise the bar for american custom part manufacturing until next time keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a fantastic day.